How's it going, guys? This is episode 11 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. This month, we're taking a trip down memory lane and chatting with some people who've helped influence us under the theme of student engagement. First up is the world's only Dr. Reinhard Reitmeier, who is professor at the University of Toronto in the Department of Biochemistry and my undergrad biochemistry prof. If you frequent the medical sciences building with any regularity, you're sure to have seen Dr. Reitmeier around, probably grabbing coffee and bestowing wisdom upon past and present students. In this episode, we sat down with him to talk about the importance of mentorship and translational skills and got him to reflect upon some of the people who've helped influence him along the way. This episode is a major throwback for me and I hope it'll help inform your future path, whether you're a postdoc, a grad student, or still an undergrad. Now, if you like what you're hearing, come at us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast, or leave us a comment on our website. Ready? Okay, let's go. It's funny, uh, I feel like we've come full circle, at least for me, because not 10 years ago, I was sitting in Convocation Hall and uh, watching you talk about amino acids in our favorite Biochem 210 class. And uh, I was your student, but of course you had no idea who I was. And now I'm not your student, but here we are talking about your beginnings and how you came to be who you are. Yeah, funny you should say that. I just gave a Biochem 210 lecture this morning to about 1,400 students. And uh, I actually do remember you. Because you were one of those students, I believe, who came up and asked me questions. There may have been a question or two, yeah. And these are the students I really love to come up to the front afterwards. Sometimes they ask me questions just for clarification. I always stick around for about a half an hour after every lecture to take questions in person. And I actually have the students all group around rather than in a line because they can learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And many times there's a student that's uh, curious about biochemistry and wants to learn more. And... Every now and then a student comes to me and said, you know, I kind of thought biochem was boring, but in your lecture I found it really interesting. I want to learn more about biochemistry and especially about research. And this is all about a student's voyage of discovery, and I'm really keen always to help promote and stimulate that. Curiosity is a great thing, and often through education we're told not to be curious about stuff, just learn the facts, but... This is what I think education is really about. Yeah, that biochem course was definitely my, I tell everyone, it was my first favorite science course. And uh, I, I knew that that was true sort of implicitly when I found myself uh, in my downtime. I think I was taking a German class. I was doodling the fluid mosaic model uh, on my notebook. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's great. So you found, you know, a niche, your passion. You never know what it is. And one of the pieces of advice I give to students, especially at the undergraduate level, is to stay open, to think about things outside of what your comfort zone. So you might take a course that's not really in your area of interest, but by doing so, you might say, well, that was kind of interesting, and that might open up a whole new window for you. And that's really, I think, you know, the advantage of an undergraduate education. Everybody has sort of a, maybe a goal in mind, where they want to end up, but, you know, things happen in life, and it's a voyage of discovery. And you might be looking for... The Northwest Passage, but you'll discover or rediscover Canada. And, and you certainly are the, uh, the can we say, the poster prop for graduate professional development, you know, thinking outside the box, thinking outside the lab. And we'll talk a little bit about what you're doing uh, right now to address that. But let's talk a little bit about where you came from, your, your early beginnings. Okay. So I grew up in Ottawa, so I was a son of immigrant parents. I moved to Canada when I was two years old, and I brought my parents with me. I thought it would be a good idea. <laughs> so uh, living in the countryside, um, 
you know, my father was a nature lover. I kind of liked sort of nature biology. And in grade 13, we had a really fantastic science teacher, Mr. Gibson, who gave us the opportunity to carry out a research project of our own design. So living out in the countryside, I decided to do a population study comparing black gray squirrels to red squirrels. So every evening and weekend, I wander around our house with a map and put X's on the map where I spotted a squirrel. You actually went out and did this. You went yeah. out into the the field. This is like this is why it's called a field study. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, out of it. and I love you know exploring. Anyway, so listen up, Pokemon Go trainers. This is some good advice here. Yeah. So I just met Pikachu yesterday and standing outside of my Biochem two ten class. Did you catch him? No. <laughs> uh, they always get away. They always get away. Yeah. But I did send the link to my uh, granddaughter who does play Pokemon Go in Vancouver. She's eight years old and she knows all of the characters and uh, is quite uh, proficient at catching even high value ones. So um, I did my population study and I found lots of like, gray black squirrels, but on the map I couldn't find one red squirrel. So I'm a B plus student and I thought, oh man, this is another, you know, project's not going to go that well for me. So one weekend I went further afield and went into a... Climax Forest, it's uh, pine trees, they're about 100 years old, absolutely gorgeous uh, grove. And I walk into this and then I spotted a red squirrel uh, at the very top of one of these pine trees, chattering madly at me and holding a pine cone in its uh, hands. So I marked the red squirrel down, I wrote up the project, handed it in to Mr. Gibson, thinking again, you know, if I get my B+, I'll be happy. I get it back a week later, and in those days they used to write with red ink on the front of every essay. You could see your mark right away. Everyone else A plus. Oh, yeah, they're all in a pile on the desk. You <laughs> hand them out. A plus. So I, wow. Amazing. Yeah, I was amazed. And uh, so Mr. Gibson told me, and this stayed with me for like 50 years, is that Reinhardt, you have discovered a fundamental principle of nature. That is, Gray black squirrels are gregarious and live in communities in deciduous forests, eat acorns, things like that, like we see in Queen's Park. Red squirrels are solitary. They defend their territory, even against other red squirrels, and they live in coniferous forests. So I thought, that is amazing. And it was eating a pine cone. Yeah, it had everything there. It had the diet, had the environment, had the solitary, the gregarious, all figured out. And what I realized from that is it's amazing what you can learn by just looking around. And it was really at that point that I decided I'd like to be a scientist. And since my golf career wasn't working out there as a PGA professional, but I still love golf, and I still play it occasionally as an opportunity for mentoring, for example, I decided to go into science at Carleton University, and I started off in chemistry because I really like molecules and molecular stuff. I did okay. I did better than high school, but I found it really difficult, especially the math and physics. It wasn't my forte. So in second year, I switched to biology, so I switched majors, and I loved that, and I did extremely well. And then in third year, Carlton created a biochemistry program between the chemistry department and the biology. So I had the best of both worlds, really. I had really good rigor of chemistry and this biology that I loved, and I found that as my niche, and I realized that was for me. So I was in the first biochem class, I think we had six students. I actually finished number one, but it was out of six. So, uh, all the other guys went to medical school, so I think they were pretty good. And while I was an undergrad, I had uh, an opportunity. Actually, it was a really interesting story because I was in a physical chemistry lab, which is not one of my favorite courses, but there were two retired 
scientist who ran the lab, who used to work at the National Research Council, and I had expressed an interest in doing research. And I said, well, you're in biochemistry. We know some people in biochemistry at the National Research Council labs, and they hire summer students. I said, oh, great, so you should apply. They wrote me really nice letters, so they did a good job in the physical chem lab, and I got in. And they had young kids from all across Canada, so I started building like kind of network there about the people interested in science, like me. And where was this <coughs> National Research So it's the National Research Council. It's uh, 100 Sussex Drive. It's right beside uh, the French Embassy and the Prime Minister's residence. And actually, if you go to Ottawa, you should visit it. It's Canada's 150th anniversary next year. Please visit Ottawa. Ooh. Visit the National Research Council Labs. It's modeled on Buckingham Palace. Actually, inside it didn't look like much like a palace. It was a lab. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty messy and smelly. Kind of like uh, MSB. Yeah. yeah kind of like, yeah, you got it. The first summer I worked with Makiguchi, a Japanese scientist, and he taught me science was hard work. I did very, very well in his lab, and he was really uh, encouraged me to you know, work hard and do well. I ended up getting a paper out of that work a few years later. I had sequenced E. coli... Protein S, small subunit 14. That was my work as a third-year undergrad. So I got a publication a few years later. That's impressive. The second year, I worked uh, with Lou Vicentine, an Italian scientist, and he taught me that research was fun. In those days, uh, you could drink coffee in the lab. Uh, I still have a picture in my album of Lou coming in the lab, not that early in the morning, uh, as opposed to Makiguchi, who was in like at 7 o'clock, uh, with a coffee in his hand saying, Ryan, how did that experiment work out last week? <laughs> and then show him the results, and he was all enthusiastic. That's fantastic. That's great. Now, now next week we should do this. So he, again, I, I, two things. They taught me research is hard work, and it also has got to be fun because it is too hard otherwise. How did you learn that, that it's got to be fun? Uh, from Luke, because, again, he was, I, I didn't realize at the time, but he was really mentoring me and encouraging me in his own style. He wasn't faking it. He was really was enthusiastic about science and discoveries. And I said, that's kind of, you know, I found something I thought was kind of trivial. It's a small thing, right? Mm-hmm. And he was so enthusiastic about it that my work mattered. I thought, that's kind of cool. Even this little thing I did was important. Great. It could lead to something else, and you never know, right? So he taught me that. And the other part, Mackie Gucci, with the hard work, is you've got to put the hours in, you've got to dedicate, you've got to know what you're doing, and you know, be an expert in techniques and apply them properly and don't waste time, etc. So it was, it was great. By the way, did either of you see the, uh, the single author paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Barack Obama about healthcare reform in the U.S.? It's just him. Well, I haven't read that paper, but uh, I did read the paper published by Margaret Thatcher, who was actually an undergrad and published on lipids. So she has a paper. I oh, you to look up. She's a published uh, you know, biochemist. Talk about changing she didn't, careers. She didn't follow the biochemical uh, pathway, literally, and decided to do something else. <laughs> a little, little biochem humor there. That's right. Sorry about that. I'm back to my <laughs> biochem 210 mode. <laughs> Try to get out of that. By the way, I just love how you remember it. Names. Well, these are important people in my life, right? They helped make my career, right? I didn't do it by myself. These are people that helped me every way, as mentors, collaborators, etc. Uh, that's an important point, I think, for the students too. You got to have mentors. But I think we're, we're we're foreshadowing a little bit here. But yeah, but again, I I started off as a mentor. I can consider Mel Gibson, my grade thirteen biology teacher. You know, one of my first mentors that say, you can do this and here's something that I'll support you in and give me, again, positive reinforcement when I came through. And I don't know, even to this day, I don't even know if I really deserved the A+, but he knew that this is something I really bought into and I really liked and I did a great job on it. And like I said, interesting insights. 
great. And by the way, just going back to that grade 13 moment, I feel like uh, having had a similar experience myself, that A-plus probably meant a lot more to you than just, hey, I got an awesome grade, right? It probably meant, hey, I didn't know I could work this hard. Like, I've never seen a grade like this on a paper with my name on it. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of funny because I ended up as the top student in biology in my high school, which, like, I must say, please, my parents, to no end, because I've never got any award <laughs> yeah. or anything. And I was, like, top, and I got some kind of a prize for it, right? And so it was kind of... It's rewarding. I didn't do it for that purpose. I right. mean, that was sort of an unintended, absolutely consequence. But it made my parents very proud that I was like, well, number one in a you know huge high school in biology, grade thirteen. Right? And you probably thought, hey, I could probably do this again if and, I just put my mind to it. And he did. He was and number one in biochemistry. Six students. Yeah, I was number one in biochem. <laughs> I could do it again. Yeah. They were again pretty bright students. They're all my friends from a small class, but we all you know, worked together, and I just. I found my niche. Actually, before we jump into GPS stuff, I wanted to ask you, are you active in research right now? Do you have a running lab? Oh, yeah, for sure. I have probably about seven papers right now that I want to finish off. I have finished applying for research grants. I'm done with that. I was funded for 35 years, like straight. I've been very happy with MRC, CHR. They're very supportive of me, even back to when I won awards, which I never thought I would do. <laughs> so they've been very good to me. Um, my last graduate student is defending next week her master's. She's, I'm very pleased to say she's already got a job with GSK. Oh, great. So she's going to transition. From she's her, all set. All set. So she's very happy. That's what she wants to do. She wants to. She's a very good people person. I recognize that. She's not that keen on doing bench research. Mm-hmm. I recognize that. But she's got real talent. And she knows it herself, and through actually some graduate professional development, she recognized her strengths and weaknesses, worked on her weaknesses, developed her strengths, and she interviews extremely well and landed a very competitive job with a really good company, GSK. Right? And I think she probably starts on October 1, so in a couple of weeks. So she's keen to... And she hasn't even defended yet? No, she has a job already. So I told her, I had a meeting with her, of course, as a good supervisor. We went through her presentation. We really grilled her on questions. I said, there's one more thing you have to do. You still have to defend your brilliant thesis, but take it seriously. I know you're all keen to get out into the real world and start your new job, but that's the task at hand. So focus on that for the next week. I know you'll do a great job, but you've got to get that done. And then away you go into your career. So it was great. So that's that's been fantastic, yeah. So I published, you know, my slew of papers. I still go to meetings in my field. I'm invited. I have collaborations all around the world in Heidelberg and Oxford and the States. And uh, that's, again, stuff I learned when I was a grad student, postdoc. So find bright people doing good things. So it still continues even today. So it's sort of a lifelong thing. It doesn't just stop suddenly that you're, oh, I got my own lab. I don't have to collaborate anymore. I've always looked for really good collaborations. That's, again, a thing I'd emphasize with students is if you can set up your own collaboration uh, and develop it because you might have a problem you want to address or you have a technique you think could apply, like, go for it. I mean, certainly talk to your supervisor. Don't do it on the sly. <laughs> Be forthcoming. In that It'll help your development incredibly. And that might end up being your transition to a new career. That is, that's where I want to go, actually. You know, I like my project, but this other thing I'm doing is really cool, and I'm going to go off. And again, you know, I think great things happen at interfaces between different disciplines these days. And if you can find someone who compliments you rather than is a clone of you, that's better, right? Mm-hmm. And you can really, I think it's the amazing thing that can be done. 
It sounds like through the different places that you've been, you've picked up a lot of different uh, sort of helpful points and, and insights and uh, about the importance of mentorship and knowing that everyone's different and different skills uh, are more conducive to different people. And you've managed to bring that to the people now as part of uh, your GPS program. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So it's always interesting how you transition into something, right? And it wasn't, it's not necessarily deliberate. So when I was chair of Biochem, we have to do these uh, the reports every five years and we have external people come in and are you up the snuff? Are you, you know, internationally recognized as a great department in terms of undergraduate teaching, graduate education, research, the whole thing, right? So I wrote up this report and I realized that we didn't have any outcome data for our master's or PhD. I said, that's kind of poor. Like we're graduating all these people, we don't even know what they're doing. Except anecdotally, maybe someone went here, someone went there. So actually what I did was I hired a grad student who used her social media skills, so this was in about 2010, something like that, to find all of our graduates, masters and PhDs, and where they ended up. So I got lots of interesting data out of that. And one piece of data that we got was our PhD graduates, 15% of them were professors. I said, no, that can't be right. Like we're one of the top biochem departments in Canada and the world. U of T is ranked top 20. We must be populating departments all around the world. It's got to be up to 70. It must be. Easily, yeah. Check the numbers. Absolutely right. So then that brought up the question about what are the other 85% doing? Are they working like, as baristas? Am I going to meet them in a limo going to the airport? Oh, weren't you a PhD student in biochem? Uh, what happened? Were you right? in my lab? Yeah. I did better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I messed up right? as a mentor, right? Yeah, no, you start thinking that way. What? Anyway, um, so we did the, the survey because we contacted these people, and it turned out to be awesome. These people were doing incredible things. So things, just some sort of examples for the master's PhDs. Uh, head of scientific publishing at Oxford Press, right? Okay, that's pretty cool. Dean of students at Trinity College. Uh, Not chief, bad. Chief litigator at Eli Lilly, a big drunk company. This person went on to law school, did patent law, and away you go, right? And so what we decided to do, this is cool stuff. I didn't know about it as chair. The grad students didn't know about this stuff. And most faculty members didn't know except anecdotally. Oh, so-and-so went to here. And if basically they went into biotech, they went to the dark side. I don't know where they are now. They're doing, I don't know. And so we said, we, we have a resource here now. We have a cadre of alumni doing cool things, including being an academic, right, or a lecturer or whatever, or being an administrator at a university, right? All great. So we decided to do, it was Nano Lee, who was a, one of our PhD graduates, who we found, who had done a postdoc and then worked in biotech and then worked as a, uh, a freelancer and a consultant, did all kinds of cool things. So she and I got together and said, you know, we should maybe organize some kind of a course for our grad students to make them aware of these opportunities, that's kind of career development, but also how to transition from this beautiful academic world that we know so well to, let's call it, in quotation marks, the real world, right? I mean, our stuff is very real, but let's call it that just for fun. So we put together this course as a pilot. We restricted it to 20 students, senior PhD students, and we brought in experts from the Career Center, from SGS, from our cadre of graduates, we always had a career panel, and they would come in and tell their story. How did you get to be head of scientific publishing at Oxford Press? And it wasn't a linear path. It was never the guy's career. In fact, what happened there, he'd gone to a scientific meeting. During one of the breaks, he wandered around the exhibits, just looking at the books and the journals, we all do. And he started chatting to the guy. And he said, well, we're looking for recruiters. And the guy says, well, recruiters, what are those? He says, well, we 
hire people to find authors who are going to write books for us, textbooks, monographs, review articles. You've got to know the field, you've got to know the best people in the field, and you've got to use persuasive communication to get them signed up as authors. So I can do that. I know the, I know the field. I know the best people in my field. I have the skills to do that. Started off doing that, traveled the world, meeting people, got them, and then worked up the ladder. Incredible. The chief litigator at Eli Lilly, the lawyer, says, what I do is I have to go to court, and I'm defending Eli Lilly's patents against infringement, right, from other little startups. We have the patent on that. You guys don't. So I have to take highly sophisticated chemistry, pharmacology, biochem, medicine, and explain it to a judge who's not a scientist or an MD, but's going to make the decision. How do I do that? I can't dumb it down. So I learned that method being a TA in biochem, where I had to take complex material presented by the professor in class at too fast, too high a level, and explain it to bright but naive undergraduates. That's how I did it. I didn't dumb it down, but I used new language. So that blew away the students in the class because they said, I just TA'd to get teaching on my resume, like it's a checkbox. No, that's a skill you're developing. You're communicating with a group, with individuals, you're doing quality control because of the lab reports, you're organizing time management, all these skills. So that's one thing we emphasize in our courses. You're, you don't even know you're learning these skills, but we had to put a name on it. You're doing project management. You don't even know you're doing it. So one of the things we did was we asked the students one question. The first thing we asked them was, uh, in the first session, how many of you have been to the Career Center? 20 students? How many? I've never been to the Career Center. I will be honest, I have never been. Neither have they. And I said, you know you guys are paying for this on your fees? This is like That's that money that you're going to that? So they didn't see Career Center as a resource for them. So we brought career people to them. And the thing that they did for us was they... Uh, allow people to convert their CV to a resume and write a cover letter for a job, a dream job. They, it wasn't necessarily an opening, but they found, oh, I like, I, I'm interested in that kind of job. Then what we did was we got them to learn how to do cold calls, information interviews. So now you found a job, and you found somebody doing that job. Sometimes they were our, one of our alumni. So we got the students to reach out to the people. I am a PhD student in biochem. I said, well, so are you. I see you're working at you know, you know, Glaxo or something, or GSK. You know, I'd like to talk to you about what it's like to be a medical liaison officer. I don't even know what that is. So then you go and meet them, have them coffee with them, discuss what their job is like, and you say, well, that's, maybe that's for you. Maybe not. Then we had the students, 20, report back on what they learned to the whole group. Sometimes they went out and said, it's not for me, but someone else said, that sounds really cool. Can I, uh, then they, you know, connect on LinkedIn and away you go. So we're starting to do their professional development. So that was very successful in biochem. Nana Lee is now organizing it. She was hired into biochem as a you know, professor teaching stream to do this professional development. Immunology, she's uh, teaching in there as well. I know now pharmacology's you know, putting a course together. So this is a four credit course, graduate course. We thought it was so important uh, that the students should get credit for. It's not co-curricular or extra, it's curricular. Some places, like in IMS, embed it within their you know, normal seminar series where you mm -hmm. do professional. Well, that's another great model for doing it. But it just shows that it's really important to do these, have these skills. And again, it's you know, a bit of hard work, but it's also fun to do these kind of things. So we had students do pitches for ideas that they had to a panel. And we use, like, for example, you know, Global Mail Science writer we brought in. We brought this litigator in, a patent lawyer, and brought someone from Mars, an angel investor kind of guy who actually had money. You have three minutes to make a pitch for a million dollars. Go for it. Tell your story. They couldn't do it. Why? We train students title, 
introduction, methods, results, and finally the conclusion. No. I, I think that this point about developing skills and the importance of, of having a diverse skill set ties in, it doesn't sound like it ties in, but it ties in pretty closely with uh, the fact that you say that only 15% of PhDs coming out of U of T actually go to academia. Because I tell all my friends, you know, they say, what are you going to do after your PhD? And I say, I don't really know. I kind of want to do everything, but I'll figure it out. But I tell everyone the PhD is kind of like a Swiss army knife. Yes, I spend most of my time in the lab doing research, reading, experiments, uh, analysis, writing, whatever. But uh, there's a host of other skills that you pick up, as you say, that you don't even know you're picking up, right? right. Communication, um, translation, teaching, yeah, emotional yeah. intelligence, patience, yeah. dexterity, if you pipette it all. Yeah. Uh, and I'm serious about that. You know, I feel like I can grip things just, just better just having worked in a lab for six years, right? Yeah. And it's way more than just your career path. It's, it's what you can pick up along the way. Absolutely. So that, I mean, that's really good. So there's two parts to that. One is that you are developing these high-level skills and maybe don't even know it because you're so focused on you know, technical and writing papers and presenting and getting published, all that. But that brings along. The issue we found with our students is they couldn't find the right vocabulary for those skills that would work in the, like the private sector. And one way that I encourage students to do that is just do this, try to do this CV to resume conversion. It's very, very difficult to do. And we have programs at SGS, we'll talk about that in a second, to help you do that. You should have a go at it on your own, like find a job, write a resume targeted to the job, write a cover letter to the right person, not dear occupant. You know, you have to find the person. You know how to do research. Who's the real person in charge of that? And find out about the job. Do research about the job, the position, the company. So I'll give some examples. In the federal government, so a lot of people want to work in the federal government. It's a great place to work. They scan all applications by computer first for keywords. So if you don't have in your cover letter and resume the words in that job description, you're not going to get an interview at all. So write that very strategically. That means you don't have, you might have one CV, but you're going to have many resumes, right? So that's one. And then there's the, once you get through that process, then there's the interview. And what it really tells you, when you get an interview, you're qualified for the job. You wouldn't get an interview if they thought you were not qualified. So now it's whether, can we work with this person? And one of the questions, very favorite questions that people ask in interviews is, what did you do to prepare for this interview? So if you said, well, I don't know, I bought a suit, you know, okay, good. So in some cases, what the people said was, They never even went to the website. They didn't read the mission statement of the organization or their strategic plan. So you say, oh, yes, I read your, you know, strategic plan. And I noticed that. And away you go, there's a conversation. Yeah, that's usually the first question. Yeah, so so you don't have that. And then also on your resume, you you put down kind of interesting things. So they might be interviewing people. All of them have PhDs. So you're not going to sit there for half an hour, even though you want to, and tell them about your great research project that you did and how it was so cool and you published all these papers. They're not interested in that. They know that, right? They want to know about other things that you did, right? And sometimes it's hobbies or activities that actually attract you. Tell me about, especially engaging with the public and other people, working as an effective member of a team. Can you demonstrate that? What was a did you ever, was there a problem and how did you address it? And people say, "Well, I never had any problems. I was you know I went through school, no problem at all. You're not going to get the job because that's not true, right? Everyone has challenges, whatever. So you have to say, think about problems you've had and how did you address those problems? Whether it may have been with your supervisor, it may have been a family crisis, it may have been monetary, whatever it is. But here's what I did. 
So that's really the kind of skills you need to develop all the way through. I got so, I, I got an interesting story. So a friend of mine who's just who's doing interviews right now, he told me that the interviewer at the end of the interview asked, "Okay, so I'm going back to the office. Go speak to the rest of the team. What are two things I should tell them about you?" Very good question. Which is a very good question to end yeah. the interview. So and that's how you want to be remembered, right? About so you a tagline or a slogan so you or think something about that, right? Yeah. So when I finished this chair, I kind of had this graduate professional development. And then I knew at the graduate school, they had a, a new dean, uh, Locke Rowan. I heard lots of great things about him. So I took a leaf out of our own graduate professional development course. If there's not a job out there for you, create your own job. So I wrote up a job description as a special advisor to the dean for graduate professional development. It's just a one paragraph thing. I invited the dean for lunch at the faculty club, and we sat down, and I gave him this one pager and said, this is what I want to do. So why was that position necessary? Because I thought it was a vacuum. What we had in biochemistry, because I'm familiar with the faculty of medicine, was the same in every department, and then I didn't know much about humanities, social science when I talked to other people, so I did my research. I said, there's big issues in humanities about valuing the PhD in humanities. People are taking too long. They're not getting jobs because there's academic job markets drying up. So it was, I thought, well, this is a very common theme here, right? So maybe I could do similar things at the gradual. So I did find out about the GPS program, which has been in play for a while, and Liam O'Leary is the person that runs it. So I met with Liam and talked about the kind of cool stuff he was doing. So they had recognized the need for professional development for graduate students. Part of it was that realization that the university put a lot of resources into undergraduates, about the undergraduate experience, because they basically didn't do so well in a lot of the you know, McLean's polls, you know, decades or so ago, but classes are too big, you didn't take care of undergrads. Then they realized it's very similar for graduate students, either domestic or international, coming here, it's a big place. We have like 17,000 grad students, you know, lots happening, and they need to have some support and development as well, but it's different from undergrads. The Career Center was really good at undergrads, and as you guys have said, Grad students, even today, don't see the, the you know, student life or career center as a place for them. That's for undergrads, right? And so SGS was really keen to develop programming targeted specifically for graduate students and their needs into the career development, so at the end, but, but also about how you can be more efficient and effective as a graduate student, develop those skills right now that will help you as a graduate student, but then, of course, those are translatable and you're going to keep them for lifelong, right? Whether it's project management, time management, how to work as an effective member of a team, how to lead a team, how to communicate effectively to the non-expert, all these things, right? So we're really keen at the graduate school to develop a program that's targeted for graduate students. As I said, I'm, I'm a child of the 60s. I'm really into student empowerment, so I really like what you guys are doing. You're coming out and challenging you know, faculty members. So uh, we have a fund, for example, in SGS, which is an innovation fund for graduate professional development. So I want to hear from students what you think your needs are, right, rather than me telling you, because I'm not you, right? I've got a job. I'm okay. But you guys are, you know, what are your concerns? What are your issues? And we can help design programming either in situ, like for IMS, for example, or if it's sort of common, we can do things for the university. One initiative I'm working on right now is an IDP. So I encourage everybody to go online and look up my IDP. It's an individual development plan. It's really targeted for life sciences students. It started off as a, a way of career development for postdocs because they were realizing that academic jobs in the States were drying up. And what am I going to do now? Because my whole life has been 
targeted this. Then FASEB took it on, so it's part of FASEB, the Federation. And then um, more recently, last couple of years, any uh, trainee, grad, undergrad, grad, or postdoc funded by NIH is mandated to do it on MyIDP. So I encourage everybody to just go online, look at the MyIDP, have a look at what it's like, and maybe have a go at it. But it's really the idea is that you're in charge of your own career development, right? And it may not be what your supervisor thinks, but it's the real power of it is that you, again, sort of do a self-assessment of your own kind of thoughts. It's a plan. That plan's going to change. It's not, you're not locked into it, but at least you have a plan. And you can discuss it with your supervisor and during your supervisor, what your career aspiration They may think that you want to stay on the academic path, which they know so well. So we love working on the apprenticeship model. Like, I'm a successful scientist. Do what I did, and you'll be successful too. But the reality is the numbers vary, but if say we're looking at biochem at 15%, 85 are not in that path. And quite frankly, most faculty members are not able or willing to give career advice outside of their own domain. They just don't have that experience. That's where SGS can play a role. So I would encourage anybody who's interested in programming to look into the GPS program. If there's stuff there you like, great. If there isn't, let us know at the School of Graduate says that we can create programming for you. To your point about the supervisor, I think it was uh, Dr. Alan Kaplan, the former director of our department, the IMS, who once told me that a great mentor does everything that a good mentor does, but also knows when to let go. Right, exactly. So it's like, you know, I'm a parent, you guys are young, so it's the same thing. It's, you know, you want your children to grow up to be, well, first of all, happy and healthy. It's the two most important things, right? It doesn't matter what else happens. If they're happy and healthy, that's great. But then you want, the, you have to let them go at some point, Right. You know, about the bird in the nest. Like, you have to, sorry, you don't know how to fly, but I'm going to kick you out of the nest anyway, and you're going to learn to fly today because you need to know how to fly so you can survive, right? So that's really, you know, great. And some students need a lot of help in kind of leaving the nest. Others, like, don't even want to be in the nest in day one. And for different reasons. For different reasons. All, like I said before, everybody's an individual, and what, how that relationship works out I mean, it's, you know, it's a complex one, the supervisor-student relationship, and, you know, the university is very keen on looking at that from all angles uh, to make it the most effective and productive relationship possible. Often it does go awry, not often, but sometimes it does go awry for various reasons, uh, but that has to be a really good, open, working relationship. If it's not open and working that you cannot tell your supervisor what your thoughts are, then that's not the kind of relationship you want to have. I, I can give one quick example of that. I had a really great graduate student, came from Life Sciences, Queens, and he came to work with me directly because, again, one of his professors at Queens recommended me. He was a colleague of mine from UBC days, part of my network. He was great. He published a lot of great papers. And I said, John, it's time for you to write up your thesis and do a postdoc. I can phone so-and-so at Stanford, and you can get in there right away. So I'm sitting in my office, John says, I don't want to do a postdoc. I was floored. This, this, but I said, John, but you're like one of my best students, why, why wouldn't you want to do a postdoc like I did in the States and, you know, go on an academic path? This, I want to become a high school science teacher. But John, you're good. You could be like a professor. You're throwing everything away. <laughs> That's right. And then I realized, okay, so, so this is like 20 years ago. I said, oh, okay, I, I think I get this. 
you're a TA. You won like all kinds of TA awards. You're awesome with students. You've completely revitalized lab courses and everything. So I wrote him a great letter for you know teachers college. You got in, got a job as a teacher. Came head of science department. You know within a couple of years worked you know with the union and then started writing science curriculum for the province of Ontario. Right. So he's transforming science education for thousands of students. He could have gone to Stanford, discovered a cancer gene, and become you know a famous scientist. But when I think about impact. He's one of my proudest graduates. Definitely. He went off to become a high school science teacher because that was his passion, teaching. I finally, again, everybody's an individual. They're not me. That's your thing. I'll support you in it as much as you can, and you're going to have an impact. Right? Is he still at it? Oh, absolutely. He loves it. So, so for a prospective student who's looking into industry, what type of PhD should they be looking for? So, Okay, so I would say it's almost irrelevant. Really? Yeah, what kind of PhD you want. They're not looking for that, necessarily that area. A PhD, that degree, tells an employer something about you. You can work hard, you can you know, focus, you can write, you can present, you can do research, you can problem solve, you can do critical analysis, all this stuff. My view on that is you should look at the career opportunities. That's where you should focus. Don't try to be strategic in terms of what you're studying and then hope that's going to lead to something. They're not going to hire you because you know how to pipette. They're going to hire you because you know how to think, right, and problem solve. And you're in biotech. You're going to work on one project today. You come in on Monday, that project's been canceled by head office or working on something else. Same skills, though, right? You, they're transferable. You say, okay, maybe not happy. I thought that was a great project, but you got to go do that. So, again, when I was a summer student, when I worked in one lab with Makaguchi, I loved it. I thought I'd work with him again. But they said, no, we're going to put you in another lab with Lou Vicentine. I said, oh. So I said, oh, okay, I can do that. And that was great. So I would work on looking at career opportunities that are out there. They're going to change. By the time, you know, if a PhD is five, six years, what's out there now may be totally different. And you know, a new technique will come in. You can say, I want to be an expert on CRISPR because it's hot. And then five years from now, there could be a new technology discovered that CRISPR is obsolete. So if you're the CRISPR person, that's how you're doing it, you're not going to get a job. But if you say, well, I can use this technique, this technique, this technique, I can learn these things, I'm adaptable, I'm nimble, I'm flexible, that's what employers are looking for. So my advice to students is start your career development day one. I know you're in graduate school and it's all overwhelming about, you know, it's just an orientation, just lots thrown at you. You got to do this, you got to do that, this form, that form, get your committee, do this, do that. But then start thinking about that. The IDP is a good way of, you know, kind of taking some time away. You're about you know, personal intelligence, you know, step back a little bit some, every now and then and look at where you're going. Am I really happy where I'm going? Is it the right place? Check out all kinds of jobs. One great resource every department will have because uh, they, they're connecting more and more with alumni. Are the alumni? Find out who in your department is doing cool things. They love to come back in our course at SGS. We're, when you phone up people or email and say, could you participate in this panel? They love to do that. Why? Because they're sitting across you know, the table from someone who was them not that long ago. I know exactly where you are, what you're thinking. Here's my process, and it was not linear, right? I met somebody, I had a conversation, that ended up opening a new door for me, and I went for it, right? It's almost never linear, by the way. I think we only have spoken to one scientist who, when we asked him, uh, was there ever a moment of doubt when you thought, this isn't for me, he just said, no, it was always for, this was always my path. 
Yeah. So yeah. So I think um, I'm, I feel very privileged being a university professor because again, I, as I mentioned before, I, I had an opportunity to do a sort of civil service job, and I decided I needed more freedom. Let's call it academic freedom to follow my nose, be my, my, and that's sort of guided me along the way. I'm curious about things like, and I knew from my squirrel days that. Just looking around, you can figure out stuff. So let's keep looking around in different places, and you never know what you're going to find, right? And then universities are great. I love September when the campus fills up again. I see myself reflected. I go back to the 60s when I was on campus. I'm so keen and everything. I just love this time of year. September for me is the beginning of the year. It's not January 1. It's not July 1. It's not some financial year. September after Labor Day, okay, now my year has begun again. I agree. And I'm back in Biochem 210 with, you know, a thousand, you know, fresh faces out there. Why am I in this biochemistry <laughs> class? Can I not get out? And I say, all I want to do is, you know, convince you that there's some cool stuff about biochemistry that I'm excited about and maybe some of you might be at a side of us. So I think this is, is great. I think that excitement's got to go all the way through your career, right? You know, till you're a senior professor like I am. I still love coming to campus. I still love doing research. I still love interacting with students because they're bright, motivated, and challenging. I love that part of the university. I'm, like I say, I feel extremely privileged to be a university professor, especially at a great place like U of T. It's a fantastic place. There you go. Step one, find out what matters most to you. Step two, just do it. Well, so when we get people in our graduate professional development courses to introduce themselves, I mean, standard thing, oh, I am a third-year PhD student working for so-and-so, and my project is, no, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear what you care about. What are you passionate about? Why are you working in cancer? Right? Why did you pick that area? You could pick any area, right? Why is that the area? Well, my aunt, you know, this, you tell the story, right? And that got me really keen. Or I had an experience in a lab and I said, this is really cool. And I started to fall. So what is your passion? And if you can marry your passion with the hard work, like, again, the equation of fun plus hard work equals success in my book, right? So you have this passion. That's the fun part. I like doing this stuff because it's really cool. And then I know it's hard work. And I have to learn this technique. Okay, I'll buckle down. I'll learn. I have to read these papers. I'll do it. Those are that's the marriage. That's good. But you gotta have that passion because it's hard. Research is going into the unknown, right? Often I have to even inform my parents that you know you're oh, you went to university. You're smart. No, I'm not smart, mom. You know that I'm not smart. But <laughs> you know, so if you learned everything that's in the biochemistry textbook, that's not gonna do anything because you're advancing knowledge, and that to me is the excitement. That's that trip I took into that climax forest and because I did that I went further than I should have right I was probably late for dinner or something like <laughs> went further I've made this discovery and that's the whole thing about research you got to just go that and those are the successful they take that one why are you looking at that when you shouldn't because I think there's something there and maybe you're wrong maybe you're wrong it's a risk but maybe it's, wow look at that I didn't think that Protein was involved in this. And then you have to say, yeah, it is. It's actually a central key feature. And that way you go, right? So, again, vice, stay open. You, know, you have to be willing to take some risks. And then those pathways can lead you to anywhere. And that, that's the exciting part. So tell us again where people can find your work if, if they're interested, as well as your initiatives. Okay. So, again, if you Google my name, Reiner Reitmeier, with a T, uh, right, you'll find me in all my publications, and I've written some stuff off up on graduate professional development for like magazines like University Affairs. If you're interested, even my Red Squirrel story has been written up. So if you want to read about that, one thing I'd encourage people to do, however, is to uh, 
look at my uh, YouTube video, uh, which is entitled How to Sleep in Biochemistry Class. It's probably one of the most useful videos uh, that you'll uh, watch, and it's certainly useful in the classes in, uh, at U of T. Check it out, everyone. Yeah. All righty, Reinhardt. Thank you so thank much. You. It's always, you. always a pleasure. Thank you, guys. This is awesome, and uh, I really am very pleased to be here. And We're pleased to take that time you're... to talk to me. It's been really great. I love it. Till next time. Yeah, for sure. Broad Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook, Instagram, at Raw Talk Podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. But John, you're good. You could be like a professor. You're throwing everything away. <laughs> <laughs>